would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2, where we'll be giving our attention to verses 11 through 22 of Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus. And since Paul begins this section with the transition, therefore, he's clearly building upon what he has just written in verses 1 through 10. In other words, whenever we're studying God's Word and we see that word, therefore, we're to ask ourselves, what is it there for? Thus pushing ourselves back to consider the context. So we'll read beginning in verse 1, but giving our attention to verses 11 through 22 this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the, hand, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Thus ends the reading of God's inerrant and holy and infallible word of truth. Well, in verses 1 through 10, what Paul is doing here is drawing a contrast. A contrast between our former way of life and our new life in Christ. Uh, We considered this passage, verses 1 through 10, this past Wednesday night in Vespers. As we considered that passage, it illustrated that what Paul is doing here is what we oftentimes see in photos, in various advertisements, pictures of someone before and after. Perhaps they have gone through a significant weight loss or diet program. 
We see those types of photos all the time, don't we? It always seems as though that before photo was taken by the five-year-old child of that individual. Always out of focus and blurry. The person in the photo is never very happy that their picture is being taken. But the aftershot, sometimes it doesn't even look like the same person because of how dramatic that transformation has become. But there's this remarkable change from the before to the after, but the change into the new person can really only be appreciated if it's held up against what that person was before. It's a very powerful contrast. But what Paul does in verses 1 through 10 is very similar. He points us back to who we were before God's grace, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following in the footsteps of the prince of the air, We were filled with disobedience. We were seeking to gratify our own desires, using others to satisfy the passions of the flesh. And the thing about that former way of life, that before lifestyle, is that when you're caught up in all of your sin and the indulgence of the self, it really feels and seems like freedom. But the reality is you are enslaved to your sin. You see, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not only was there nothing that you could do pleasing to the Lord, but you also lacked the ability to do anything other than disobedience. And because of that, you were, as Paul says in verse 3, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And if we lack not only the desire, but also the ability to move toward a restored relationship with God, then that means that He, of course, must be the one who initiates that relationship. Out of His grace and mercy and love, He must move toward us. And of course, that is what He does, and that's what Paul captures in verses 4 through 10. Now in Christ, God has made you alive. It is by His grace alone that He has saved you. So... As you are reminded of who you once were, the glorious beauty of who you now are in Christ Jesus becomes even more spectacular. That before His grace came into our lives, we were more defiled and more helpless and more hopeless than we could ever have imagined. But now, because of union with Christ, we are more glorious than we could have ever dreamt. And so if he is the one who initiates this covenant relationship, if he is the one that comes into our lives, changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, causing us to be born again, not because of anything within us, if that's the case, then of course there is no place in our lives for boasting, no place for pride. For each one of us is morally undone, bankrupt, before the Lord, living at enmity toward God our Creator. And unless He intervenes out of love and compassion and care for us, we would simply continue in this state of helplessness. That's the contrast you see that Paul is seeking to unpack here in verses 1 through 10. And now as we move on to verses 11 through 22, what Paul is doing here in this new segment is he's drawing a connection between what happens to the believer individually Namely, that God's grace comes into his life and works this transformation so that the response is faith and repentance, moving now to a more corporate, what we could say a more congregational application. In other words, if God, by his divine initiative, has transferred us 
from this realm of death and slavery and hopelessness and helplessness where we were objects of his wrath into, you see, the sphere of grace and mercy and freedom and hope and forgiveness and life eternal, then that change in status ought to result in joy-filled living with one another in the local church. And so what he is saying is that a necessary application of your union with Christ is joyful living with one another. And so just as he sought to draw a contrast in the life of the believer between the before and after in verses 1 through 10, he does the same thing here in verse 11, but sort of broadening his categories, talking about the entire church as a community, helping us to understand what it means to be the people of God, that the transformed Christian life by necessity looks like love for God and love for neighbor. And so God's sovereign grace changes us personally, verses 1 through 10, but this sovereign grace has implications for community life, verses 11 through 22. You see, if we think for a moment about all of the areas of division and disintegration that our sin brought into the world, that when Adam rebelled against God, all of humanity was plunged into hatred toward God, hostility toward the created order, turmoil within the self, and division in relationships with one another. In each of those realms, sin has tremendous effects. But through the completed work of Christ, he has come to restore, to renew, to redeem, to reconstruct every area that was destroyed in our rebellion against him. And so if all things are to be brought into union under Christ, then the barriers of hostility and division that were so often experienced in our relationships with one another, those things must be removed. The application of the gospel means that if you are a recipient of God's grace in Christ, then by necessity it follows that you live joyfully with one another. And we simply know intuitively that this should be true. And imagine in any relationship, imagine a relationship in which two parties are constantly at odds with one another. That it seems like they can't even have a conversation without it quickly escalating into words of hatred and anger that are hurled back and forth toward one another. And imagine that both people in that relationship sit down with their elder or their pastor and they try to convince him that they have no problems at all in their relationship with the Lord. That as far as that vertical relationship is concerned, things have never been better. There is great delight in spending time with the Lord each morning. The real problem, they both say, is simply with the other person. If he would just stop being so annoying, if she would just stop being so controlling, I could get along. We all know that such a response would be foolishness and hypocritical at best. But isn't this how we implicitly treat one another in our relationships when we allow conflict to continue, acting as though we can have peace with God while having hostility and division in our relationships with one another? To be made right with God means that we must be made right with one another, not just to the point where we sort of tolerate one another. That's not enough. But as, we see, as we'll see in a moment where we are joyfully living with one another, actively seeking relationships that are filled with peace and love and unity. 
God's grace is to work in our lives in such a way individually and corporately that the result ought to be joyful living with one another. And so what we see is that joyful living with one another requires a proper understanding of our identity. It's extremely significant to note that Paul in verses 11 and 12 tells the church to remember. It's significant because this is the first imperative That is the first command that he has used so far in this letter to the church. In fact, it's the only imperative that we come across in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Everything else that Paul has written thus far and everything that he will write until the end of chapter 3 is in the indicative mood. That is who you are by sovereign grace. What God has done to redeem you and what the results of that sovereign grace are all about. It is what we could call gospel grammar. And my kids hate grammar, but this much I try to impress upon them. It is always the work of Christ, always the indicative that precedes any instruction on how we are to live as God's people, the imperative. It's always the one before the other and is always the two of them together. The way that Sinclair Ferguson puts it, is the imperative always depends on the prior indicative of God's grace. Always. Confuse indicative and imperative and we cease to use the grammar of the gospel. And if we cease to use the grammar of the gospel, then of course we cease to have the gospel at all. And so we are told to remember. And even though it's an imperative, notice that it's a command of recollection and then application. Remember what God has done for you. Recall his great love for you and grow to live out of such love with one another. What are we to remember? We're to remember, first of all, who we once were. Verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now I know the wording here is a little bit confusing, If we think of the Jewish people, you see what, when they thought of themselves, they thought very highly of themselves because they alone were God's covenant people. And the sign of that covenant, of course, was circumcision. And so they would very proudly point to that covenant sign that set them apart. Here is visible, tangible evidence sign that they were God's people. And so those who lacked that covenant sign were seen as inferior They were called the uncircumcision, or literally the foreskin. It doesn't seem like a very creative name to call someone who doesn't fit in. But it gets at what the Jews saw was significant, what they saw was important for them. For them, what mattered was the visible sign. And of course, the Jews were wrong because circumcision is not simply some external mark of separation, But that circumcision was always meant to point to the necessity of circumcision of the heart. That the Lord is after our heart above all else. And so Paul is reminding them of their past heritage in order to create a greater understanding and appreciation for the grace that they have received. Now, of course, Paul could say the same thing about his own life. He's not seeking to somehow belittle the Gentile people here. You know, in the book of Philippians, recall there that Paul says that I was circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee and educated in all aspects of the law, zealous in my faith to the point that I persecuted the church of Christ. 
But it was then that the grace of God intruded into my life and saved me. Well, then he goes on in verse 12. You were separated from Christ. You were isolated from Him. We were alienated, you see, from Israel. We were outside of the covenant community. There was a very real sense in which there were unique blessings to the nation of Israel. By grace, Abraham was chosen of all of the people in the world to be one who received the covenant from the Lord. And those who were the literal seed of Abraham, his children and their children's children and so forth, were the ones that benefited from that covenant relationship. And so to be born within the nation of Israel would result in covenant blessings. It was only there that you might be a recipient of divine revelation. Only within those geographical boundaries would you have access to the Word of God. And so under that old administration of the covenant, as a Gentile by birth, you would have been alienated from such truth. And because you did not have access to such truth, you were, as Paul says, without hope. Because you were without God. But now the grace of God through Christ comes, and it's for all nations of the world. The way that Paul puts it elsewhere is that we are made children of Abraham, we are made true children of God and members of the covenant by faith alone. And so as we think of our before and after contrast here, before we were hopeless, we were isolated, we were alienated and separated from Christ and without God. But we were to remember now who we are. Verse 13, here's who you now are. Now you are one who has been brought near. Again, it is His divine intrusion into your life that has caused you to be born again. He is the one who has drawn you near to Himself. This is who you now are. Well, so why do we need to remember? Why do we need to keep before us these photos of this before and after perspective? Well, here's an objection that you might raise to yourself at this point. You might say, well, I've always known of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've grown up in the covenant community, in a family that taught me about the gospel, and I can never remember a day in which I did not profess faith in Christ. And so this notion of remembering simply doesn't apply to me because I can't remember a time in which I didn't profess such a faith in Christ. Well, you're not quite off the hook that easily because we're told to remember. And what we're told to remember is what our fallen nature was like. We all were like this because of the sin that we inherited from Adam. We were born as children of wrath and filled with opposition toward God. So even if you can't recall a time period of rebellion, the reason that you need to remember is because your heart is still very much pulled toward a lifestyle in which you seek to put yourself at the center of your own world. And if you know your heart at all, you know that you have this tendency to live with a self-filled living, that kind of former way of life that Paul is talking about. So there's a sense in which you really don't need to remember in order to remember. And we read earlier this morning from Psalm 95, where the people of God are reminded that their forefathers had put God to the test, and they had failed to trust Him in the wilderness wanderings. Here's the people of God who had seen firsthand the mighty deliverance of their warrior king who had come to deliver them from such captivity. 
who had led them across the Red Sea as they walked across on dry ground while their enemies and the Lord's enemies were destroyed behind them. And even though they had such a great act of deliverance to remember, yet their hearts were filled with hardness toward the Lord because they really failed to remember, you see. And so they were filled with grumbling and complaining and distrust and longing for different circumstances, even wanting to return to slavery rather than trust in the Lord. How quickly the human heart is filled with pride, with a sense of entitlement as though we are deserving of a better life, that the trials that God brings into our lives are unreasonable, or that the people that God in His sovereignty brings into our lives are simply too difficult for us to love. How quickly we long to dethrone God and put ourselves in His place when He has sent His own Son to deliver us from such captivity. I was reading a book with my children this past year about a family from Poland who during World War II was exiled to Siberia for being capitalists. And the story of this family was from the perspective of a young girl about 12 years old. As they went through several years living in exile in that Siberian wasteland, there were all sorts of in harsh, harsh conditions that they had to endure, barely enough food to survive, clothes that were completely inadequate for the winters that they lived through, living conditions in which they had to share lodging with other families, extremely cramped, and conditions that were filled with infestation and more. And amazingly, she and most of her family survived this period of exile and war. But things for their family didn't end there. They returned to their home in Poland, in which they had found that all of their possessions had either been taken or thrown away. And even the house that was theirs was occupied by someone else with no recourse for them to possess it again. And as she grew, she immigrated to America. And as she crossed the Atlantic, met the man who would later become her husband. She married and had children and settled down in upstate New York. And the postscript to the book spoke of how grateful she was for her life as she remembered, as she looked back on all of the harsh conditions that she had lived through. See, to forget such a past will sort of result in her becoming like every other American, entitled, filled with individualism, and dissatisfied and more. But an appropriate remembrance of her past would result in great humility and thanksgiving and gratitude. And so we too need to remember our past because we're prone towards pride. By nature, we inflate ourselves above others. We think that we are more enlightened than those around us. We think that we're more mature than others, more loved by God than others. And so to remember who we once were ought to lead to great humility. And we need to remember because we're prone towards spiritual amnesia. We quickly forget the amazing grace of God in our lives. And so when we go through hardships in life, we convince ourselves that no one else understands. No one knows what I'm going through. No one is as bad as me. You see, when we fail to remember, we quickly become dissatisfied with life, become irritable and filled with self-pity, impatient and full of anxiety and worry and depression and more. Someone has said, remembering who you were, remember who you were rather, do not forget where you came from, all that you have become, all the blessings you enjoy are entirely of God's grace. You did not receive them because you were the kind of person who would respond well to them. 
You are by nature a helpless and hopeless Gentile. You are what you now are only because of grace. And so living with one another joyfully requires this remembrance of identity, who we were and who we now are by grace alone. Remembering so that in our lives we're filled with gratitude for what God has done to change us from that past lifestyle, that he has given us hope in the present and hope as we look to the future. And also living joyfully with one another requires an understanding of what Christ has done for us to secure these great benefits that are ours. And so as we understand more and more what Christ has done for us to make these benefits our own, it ought to lead to greater and greater joyful living in community with one another. And so to live with greater unity, we need to understand what the Lord Jesus has done. What has he done? Well, first, the way that Paul describes it here is that Christ procures propitiation. I had to think of another P word that went with propitiation. We see that in verse 13. We are brought near through or by the blood of Christ. We come across this word propitiation frequently in our assurance of pardon that we hear each Sunday morning. We did this morning from 1 John chapter 2 that He is the propitiation for our sins. We hear that word frequently, but what exactly does it mean? Again, if we go back to verse 3 of chapter 2, we see there that we are by nature children of wrath, under the wrath of, and curse of God. Every sin is deserving of that wrath and curse of the Lord. And as Jesus died for us, He drank to its very fullness the cup of God's wrath. He absorbed that penalty that we deserved, taking the wrath of God away that we might stand before Him. That's what propitiation means. It gets at this important aspect of Christ's atonement. That through His work upon the cross, He took the wrath of God from us. Now, Paul doesn't use that word propitiation here in Ephesians chapter 2, but it's exactly this concept that he's getting at when he says that it's through the shed blood of Christ that we are brought near. Now, as your shepherding groups are meeting for lunch later this afternoon, this would be a great question for you to ask your children. What does propitiation mean? God's just and holy wrath is removed because of the all-sufficient and complete shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's that day of atonement that we heard about last week from Leviticus chapter 16. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That through the shed blood of Christ, there is made complete atonement for sin. Well, so how does the removal of the wrath of God translate into joyful living with one another? What's well, the shed blood of Christ that has brought me, who was once far off, near now to God? Look at chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so being a recipient of divine favor should compel you, ought to compel you, to show love and forgiveness toward one another. 
Now, to live joyfully with one another also requires that we understand that Christ has broken down separation. In verse 14, He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's the death of Christ that destroys division and disunity in relationships. Then in the place, there might be unity. Paul probably has here in mind a literal wall which was in the vicinity of the Jewish temple. A wall roughly four and a half feet tall that separated Jew from Gentile. That in Paul's own day, it would have stated that any Gentile who crossed over this wall into Jewish territory would be arrested. And whoever is arrested will himself be responsible for his death, which will follow. Not the greatest method of evangelism. And in fact, in Paul's own time, the rabbis were instructed to tell their students that Gentiles are merely fuel for the fires of hell. But it is the work of Christ that has destroyed this type of hostility toward one another. But notice in verses 14 and 15 that Christ not only breaks down that dividing wall of hostility because it's not simply enough to destroy that wall and then sort of resign yourself to the fact that, okay, now I guess I'm just stuck with all these people now that I can't really stand. But instead, he creates restoration and unity. This dividing wall of hostility has been removed, and now in its place, there is a unified people, a singular people, a people who all belong because we have our shared identity together in Christ. And so any sort of racial boundaries, social boundaries, or any other sort of prejudices that we might have toward one another are to be removed. We read the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it's through the ministry of Christ, you see, that this division between Jew and Gentile has been removed. And a new people group has emerged. And now the thing that defines our identity and the thing that creates unity with one another is our common relationship with Christ. And we are to delight in the great diversity that we find within the local church because we are members of this new community. And as members of this new community, it is that identity, you see, that shapes us and redefines us. We're not defined by our ailments. We're not defined by our past circumstances. We're not defined by our achievements, either vocationally or academically. We're not defined by the harsh realities of life, but rather it is that we are in Christ. So as we think of an application, you see, when conflicts arise between you and another, you are obligated to resolve them, not to ignore those conflicts, not to act as though time will just sort of allow them to disappear, but to actively work at unity. When you find your mind and your heart filled with pride, You are to actively seek to lay aside such thoughts and instead to fill them with thoughts of humility and thankfulness. When you use your words to cut others down, you are to go to them to seek forgiveness and to replace such words with kindness, with words that build one another up. As much as you are able, you are called to live at peace with everyone to actively pursue such unity, to live in such a manner is a high, high calling 
for the believer in Christ. In fact, it is Christ that gave his life that this might be the result, that we might be a people unified who find our identity in him. And so the only way that we can live this way with others is if we understand peace with God through Christ. And so living joyfully with one another means that we're taking the deep and rich truths about the doctrines of Christ, of our salvation in Him, and we're seeking to work those out, fleshing them out in our relationships with one another. But because we have peace with God, we are to have peace with one another. And finally, we live joyfully with one another because this is our home. This, you see, is where we belong. Look again at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when we think of living together within the church, we start with the commitments to the presupposition that God in His good and purposeful and loving providence has put not only us, but those around us here within the local church. If Christ is our foundation, our cornerstone in which we are to be built, then there is no other place, you see, in which we ought to be as secure There's no other place that ought to be as desirable as the church. We know living in Florida that any time a hurricane comes our way, we see the constant warnings that those who live in the Gulf area are to flee into shelters, places that have secure foundations so that they can endure the strong winds that are going to come. You see, that's what the church ought to be, a place that has this solid foundation in the person and work of Christ. So that when all the troubles of the world swirl around us, we have stability, we have peace, we have unity, we have comfort. We belong to the family of God, a family that was established by Christ himself. And so this family in which we live ought to reflect what a family should be. A place in which you are loved and treated with grace and a place in which you are treating one another with such grace. This should be the place in which we seek to outdo one another in humble acts of service and love, in which I count you as more significant and important than myself. It's perfectly perfectly natural then for us to look to the needs of others before we look to the needs of ourselves. There ought to be an atmosphere here in the local church that we find nowhere else in the world. And it's this whole structure you see that is being built together by the Lord. Maybe you think to yourself that my ideal would be living in a cottage up in the mountains where I'm isolated from others, where it's pleasant and it's restful all the time. Or perhaps living at the beach where it's always satisfying and refreshing. But the image here is of a temple, of a temple in which it is the great stonemason himself who is shaping us to fit among those around us. In a book on the church entitled The Enduring Community, we read these words. The fundamental essence of the church from an earthly point of view is the connection between people. The church means that I must get along with you. 
And you must learn to put up with me too. You see, we are bound to serve one another. We are called to sacrifice and to serve regardless of what we might think of one another. It's a temple. It's not a cottage on the hill. It's not a house on the beach to which you can retreat and sort of go about life at your own leisure. It's a temple in which we are being built together. It's not an office building. It's a temple in which the purpose is to give worship to the Lord. And so if this is the thing that is to shape your identity, then you are to never isolate yourself from the community. If we are being knit together and built together into this dwelling place of God, you see, by the Spirit, think of this imagery as this tight, knitted nature of stones being placed together within a building. You are one of those living stones, and other stones are packed in around you. Again, from the enduring community, others stick their noses into our business. They get involved in our lives more than we might like. They are often too close. They push and contort us into positions that we do not like. They sin against us, and we sin against them. They force us into uninvited molds. That sounds desirable, doesn't it? Yet this is what we need because this is what our God has told us we need. Not a tent, not a cottage on a hill, but a holy temple to the Lord. And not only is this what we need, but this is what our hearts must long for. See, our tendency is toward isolation. Our tendency is to be okay with the intrusion of other people into my life as long as it's what I want to hear. But when I go out and live the way that I want with no regard for the rest of the structure, you see, it's hurtful to those who love us. It's contrary to our calling, and it's damaging to those who've been charged with our care. If this is where we belong, then this is where we ought to long to be. So we don't just show up on a Sunday morning or evening or even on a Wednesday night and check it off our to-do list for the week so that I can go out and alleviate my conscience and do whatever I want with my other scheduled activities in life. But this is our family. You see, this is where we belong. And the result of all of this, you see, is that it will break our heart to go anywhere else because this is where we are family. And if you don't get this, if you don't see this, if you don't feel this way, well, it'd be nice if you could blame everyone else around you. But you've got to start by looking at yourself. Because to resist such a high calling is to resist God himself. You recall that we sang earlier that hymn by John Fawcett, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, our good creator, and the one who knows us full well and knows that we need this community of believers in which you have placed us within, we ask, O Lord, that you would grow us in humility, that our hearts would be receptive to our need again and again for the grace of Christ, that we would remember, always remember, who we once were and who we now are because of our union 
with our risen Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.